so this is uh, so I'm going to present a, a study uh, which is joint work with my uh, colleagues and friend Julio Elias, uh, who is uh, at Universidad Universitat del Sema in, um, in Argentina, and Mario Machis at uh, Johns Hopkins University. So. As a starting point, I mean, I might want to go back a little in history, in the history of thought, there is a long tradition uh, about the fact uh, that societies are held together, not just by, if you want, material interest, but some values, some sort of higher end values, beliefs, that a population uh, share, and according to many scholars, perhaps Durkheim, uh, the French sociologist is the one who expressed it uh, uh, more strongly. Uh, you know, think is you know are necessary to uh, for societies to to stay together, to grow, to prosper, uh, and so on. Very often, the sort of the implication of the presence of these values is that in order to uh, abide by these values, other uh, principles or activities might be sacrificed. Because they might be against this, uh, this general, these general values, and in many cases, these other activities have to do with uh, economic activities, transactions, price-mediated interactions between individuals. There is a long history uh, of uh, of these views. If you think about the gospel uh, and especially the episode of the cleansing of the temple, when Jesus Christ arrives in Jerusalem, he goes to the temple and he finds that. There are money traders, merchants uh, in the temples. Presumably, they are engaging in activities that benefit themselves and the buyers. So they are sort of welfare-enhancing activities, uh, and that individuals enter in, you know, freely, voluntarily. But the fact that they occur in a particular location uh, is seen by Jesus as uh, unacceptable from a moral point of view. So. He says, you know, this is a house of prayer, we are making it into a den of robbers. So free merchants who are generating, uh, presumably, public welfare, in that context they become robbers. They are destroying welfare to the sort of violation of certain values. Fast forward 2,000 years, uh, we see these thoughts, these views, still very present in the debate. So Michael Sandel, I know some of you talked about him uh, earlier today in your class, uh, has a very similar view about the fact that there is, you know, a contrast between sort of justice and prices or distribution. If you want, there are some things that shouldn't go through uh, to the market. This is also reminiscent of Kant's distinction between things that have a price and things that have a dignity in, uh, in some sense uh, in the critique of the practical reason. And so this uh, idea has been there for a long time. and. As an economist, it's, you know, it's quite surprising then, although very often this uh, uh, sort of uh, contrast, this, uh, uh, they, they concern economic activities. Uh, economists have paid very little attention about sort of the social support behind economic, uh, economic activities. Until uh, Al Roth uh, came about, uh, Al Roth is a professor of economics at Stanford University. He was the recipient of the Nobel Prize in Economics in 2012. And he's been the one who really brought the idea of thinking about repugnant transactions. We'll define what we mean by repugnant transactions in a moment. 
into the economics debate. And the idea is that as economists, we need to understand what he calls folk ideas. Uh, we can call them social or cultural beliefs and the way they affect uh, the function or the existence themselves of, uh, uh, of markets or economic transactions. And so this is the definition that our Roth has introduced of repugnant transactions. The idea of repugnant transaction is transaction that is mutually beneficial for the parties that enter the transaction. So the two parties, if you want, involved in the transactions want to take part in that trade. But third parties, you can say society, want to prevent those activities to occur. So maybe we should make a distinction, at least conceptual, between a repugnant transaction and a repulsive or disgusting transaction. Okay? So I might find, I don't know, eating insects disgusting, you know, yuck, you know, but maybe I don't think it should be illegal, right? Uh, it is different if I consider, for example, and, you know, we have some example on these slides, I don't know, um, uh, let's say, uh, you know, commercial surrogacy or abortion or paying a price for rights, as the you know, happens in, in, in several countries of the world, prostitution, uh, and, uh, and so on, unacceptable. So not, I, don't, I don't necessarily find the, those activities disgusting, but I might find them unacceptable, repugnant in this sense. And in history, we've we'll seen cases where, for example, activities that were acceptable, like child labor, uh, became uh, became unacceptable and illegal in most in most places. But think also about the paid army. For a long time, armies were only on a voluntary basis. Paid soldiers were actually called mercenaries, and that was a derogatory term, right? Whereas today, not only do most countries pay uh, for their soldiers, their army, but soldiers, people in the army, are honored as heroes, right? So uh, they're recognized as, uh, uh, as such. Uh, pricing in certain markets uh, may be considered unacceptable, so the type of prices, for example, for drug, uh, for access to drugs. Uh, you might remember last July, right after the shooting on the Danforth, uh, there was a concert, a charity concert at the Danforth Music Hall. Uh, tickets went away super rapidly. And then immediately a secondary scalper's market started with the ticket at very high prices, right? And then, you know, from a purely economic point of view, that kind of made sense. There were people who didn't get the tickets, but they valued those tickets very much above the market value. So they were willing to pay more. But the fact that this was a charity concert, a concert to honor the memory of uh, all those affected, in particular the two girls who died, made that particular activity unacceptable as violating some higher order higher order values. So what are these higher order values that the literature from bioethics, ethics, and sociology, psychology has considered as limiting certain activities? So first of all, there is a concern for the coercion of, or exploitation of the participants. So uh, there is a belief that for certain activities, parties, one party or both parties might actually not enter those activities fully freely. And informed consent is at the basis of any sort of transaction. Think about prostitution. Some people see it as a trade between informed and willing parties. Other parties stress that 
those who engage in prostitution, most often women, are actually exploited. They don't do it voluntarily. They are forced uh, to, do, uh, to do that. And as such, these activities should be prohibited uh, or severely restricted because it violates you know, fundamental principles we believe in. Uh, another of these fundamental principles that define what kind of markets or economic activities we accept in a society has to do with fairness. For some activities, for example, we might want uh, equal access for everybody. Think about healthcare, uh, for example. There are many reasons, for example, for a public healthcare system, like in Canada, many economic reasons, but there are also ethical reasons. Everybody should have access to, uh, to healthcare. That doesn't apply in all countries, as, uh, as we know. At the deeper level, there is a sense that allowing certain transactions, allowing a price mechanism for certain activities might corrupt uh, some fundamental moral values. Very often this idea of corruption has to do with, uh, uh, you know, trading human fluids or parts, think about plasma, think about organs, and so on. And there is also a sense of the risk of a slippery slope, right? So suppose today we allow for people to sell one of their kidneys. Okay, what's next? Should we allow people to use a kidney as a collateral for a mortgage, right? That becomes, you know, immediately we, we start being a little more, how about selling your, your heart? You know, you can sell a kidney and you can survive because you can live with one kidney. You're gonna die if you give away your heart, but maybe you don't wanna live anymore. And you want the money to go to your kids for college or whatever, right? So why not? But immediately, you know, this idea of moving forward makes more people uneasy. And so in order not to get into those kind of dilemmas, we want to stop much earlier uh, and, uh, and, and prohibit certain activities. The yuck factors or disgust might also play, uh, play a role for some of this uh, uh, sort of social uh, support to occur, uh, to occur or not. Because you know, these are sort of common values in many societies, but they're also, you can interpret them in different ways. So as a consequence, we see differences across countries and, and uh, through time, as I, as I said earlier, about what's allowed and what's not allowed. In a sense, Canada provides very interesting examples, in my opinion. Uh, think about debates uh, currently going on in Canada about legalizing commercial surrogacy. So as of now, uh, voluntary uh, unpaid uh, gestational surrogacy is allowed in Canada, so a woman can carry someone else's child uh, uh, for no pay, unlike in certain uh, states in the US, uh, for example, but not for pay. Uh, there's been a long debate and legalization recently about doctor-assisted death, uh, British Columbia first and other uh, provinces later. Plasma is a very interesting case, one that I have also studied with my co-authors. Uh, so it is, uh, in most provinces in Canada, it is illegal to be paid to give plasma, okay? And it is illegal to set up for-profit plasma centers. But about 80% of the plasma that we use in Canada comes from the US where donors are paid. So here, it's even more difficult to understand what principles, many Canadian provinces, and perhaps even the, the federal government soon, is uh, appealing to, to prohibit uh, these activities to occur, to occur in Canada. We 
you know, are okay with people beating each other up uh, on the ice rink, okay? But some courts are not okay with people beating each other up in the bedroom. Uh, and so some BDSM practices have been uh, considered illegal uh, by some courts in, uh, in Canada on the ground that it's impossible that both or more than two parties involved do it freely. There is always one part that is coerced or uh, exploited in this kind uh, in this kind of activity. So one can debate whether this is reasonable or not, but you know the, the, the boundaries are, are very difficult to define because these are fundamental principles on the one hand, but they can be interpreted in different ways. But I want to focus on the case that we studied in detail uh, in our paper, uh, where actually there isn't much variation across countries, or as it happens, uh, over, over time in the, uh, in the legislation. And this has to do with uh, the procurement and allocation of kidneys for transplants. So the line, the red uh, line that you see sticking up very much indicates the trend uh, of uh, the number of patients on the wait list for the kidney in the US, you know, with the appropriate scaling, you can do it with Canada, it's very much the same. Whereas, uh, you know, focus for the moment on the, on the black line indicates the, uh, the number of transplants over the last 25 to 30 years, and you can immediately see the increase in the gap between what we can call demand and supply. So there are more and more people on the wait list they spend longer and longer on the wait list. The average time these days is four and a half years, which is actually, uh, for many cases, it's higher than the life expectancy of a person with a severe renal, renal failure. And uh, so people die. People die every day, 20 people a day on average in the US, waiting for a kidney for, uh, for transplant. There is an alternative to transplant for uh, people with kidney disease, that's dialysis. Uh, that allows you to live, uh, but your life, as opposed to getting a transplant, is worse. It's a worse life, has a short, shorter expectancy, and also your quality of life, uh, you know, your well-being is, uh, uh, is lower. In addition to this sort of uh, uh, aspects, uh, dialysis is also much more costly. Uh, on average, one would save about $100,000 by switching one patient from dialysis to, uh, to transplant. And most of this money, by the way, also in the US, uh, where the healthcare system is different, is taxpayer money, because most of dialysis treatments are through Medicare, are covered by Medicare. So we're talking about a cost of about $7 billion, just the financial cost, not to mention the quality of life, the lives lost, and in that case, the cost significantly higher, of course. Uh, a few scholars over the last 10 years have said, well, if there is this imbalance between demand and supply, where well, economists know how to deal with imbalances between demand and supply, with the price mechanism. Why don't we pay people to donate the kidney? Okay? We have two kidneys. We can live pretty well with one. So all of us are, in principle, potential kidney donors. Uh, okay? And that's the margin where we might expect an increase in donation because the seized donations are important, half of the half of the transplant these days. Uh, but it's really and donations among, for example, relatives. Uh, but it's those sort of undirected donations by a stranger uh, that we are really missing. There are very few of those, and so the idea is that to increase those, 
maybe we may consider paying, uh, paying donors. So Gary Becker was another Nobel Prize winner together with our co-author uh, Julio Elias uh, wrote the paper about 10 years ago uh, estimating that you know, a price around $30,000 would actually help a lot eliminating the shortage of, of kidneys. There are m more recent uh, estimates that put the price around $40,000-$45,000. Uh, uh, payments are illegal. They're illegal everywhere. They've always been illegal, with one exception, which is the Islamic Republic of Iran, where people can get paid to donate uh, the kidney. And the prohibition, uh, in our opinion, is very well expressed by this sentence, a couple of sentences from a, a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine by uh, Francis Delmonico, who is a transplant surgeon uh, in, uh, in Boston, and his co-authors. Uh, this is, and is, is one of the strong advocates against any form of payment, is very influential. So what he says, what they say is payments are ethically unacceptable, and we have highlighted this, despite the purported benefits of such a sale for both the buyer and the seller. Fundamental truth of our society, life and liberty, should not have a monetary price. So this is very much the definition of repugnant that I showed before. So they basically say, yes, sure, the recipient will be better off, they'll get a kidney. The donor, if they decide to donate a kidney for money, you know, they're better off, otherwise they wouldn't do it. We would have one more kidney, one more transplant, or many more transplants, but we don't care. There are other values that are more important and non-negotiable. Okay, so we have to sacrifice this poor, poor benefit for the buyer and the seller. So this is the position that sort of is at the basis of the legislation. And we decided that actually we wanted to go a little further and try to see whether that's the rule. We wanted to see, we wanted to explore essentially the nature of preferences by the public for paying kidney donors, okay? And we tried to sort of uh, uh, formalize this in some questions. So. The first questions we, we had and we wanted to try and answer is whether the opposition, if at all, to pay kidney donors is you know, response to sacred values, so values we don't negotiate against anything, or whether people actually, for the most part, have a consequential views. So for example, if I was to say, uh, by uh, allowing payments, we would increase transplants, like by 30%, for example would people be in favor or not, right? So is there a trade-off that people are thinking when considering uh, this, uh, this activity? So that's one of the questions we address. And this is a relevant question, not only from a sort of theoretical or scholarly point of view, but it, it's also relevant from a policy uh, perspective. So if it turns out that people respond in their attitude to uh, increases or changes in, uh, uh, in transplants due to payments, then perhaps evidence, say running some pilots uh, about the effectiveness of payments, might actually provide valuable information for the public. Okay? And as it turns out, uh, very recently, uh, a representative uh, from Pennsylvania, a Democrat, Matt Cartwright, he just got re-elected, um, introduced or actually proposed the bill to uh, modify the 1984 prohibition for payments to allow some forms of compensation on a small scale, sort of as pilot projects, 
to see what works, uh, essentially. And so this is very practical in a sense, and we, as well as uh, uh, our and being involved, uh, the, the, the representative you know, called us uh, to talk about this some, some time ago. So this is very much something that, that's happening as we, as we speak. We also want to try and understand what, if anything, again, uh, makes people uh, repelled, if you want, or opposed, or in favor of payments, perhaps. Is it the process? Are there some aspects of the procurement and allocation system that allows payment that, uh, uh, that affect people's opinion? Or is it all about the outcomes, uh, in a sense? So do people respond to potential increase in, in transplants? or even in front of increasing transplants, people are opposed, for example, because of some aspects of, uh, uh, of a procurement and allocation system that people don't, uh, don't like, don't approve of. And so this, again, has some implications from a policy standpoint for institutional design. Can we address, from a policy point of view, these concerns that people, uh, that people have? And then we wanted to go more in depth and try to understand what the ethical foundations of these preferences uh, are. So there is this idea that repugnance has strong ethical foundations, but what are these, uh, essentially? What makes people not approving of this, this kind of activities? Is it about coercion? Is it about fairness? Is it about this sense of violation of human dignity? Uh, and again, this has an impact on what policymakers, uh, market designer, policy designer, can do or cannot uh, cannot do to address uh, to address issues related to uh, the supply shortages of, of kidneys for transport. Okay, so I'm going to go very fast through uh, a very basic uh, uh, guiding framework. We economists, you know, like to think through Greek letters sometimes, but uh, I'll be fast. But then I want to focus mostly on the, uh, the survey and the choice experiments that we design to address these questions and on our findings, uh, of course, okay? So super briefly, uh, again, I don't want to spend time on this, but you know, just to give you a sense of the way we think about the world, we can think of individuals deriving some benefits, some utility from the way a procurement and allocation system for kidneys is, uh, is organized. And in a very stark way, we can think of two elements that matter, the process, the, the organization of the system, and the outcome. So how many more kidneys, for example, payments uh, will, uh, will generate, okay? And so to the extent that we can modify uh, either or both uh, these features of a system, the allocation, the procurement and allocation rules, and in particular the introduction of payments, and to the extent that this has an impact on supply of kidneys, we can figure out how people, we know our goal at least is to figure out what people respond to, right? And also to try and understand what you know, different types of people are. Some people responding to, for example, transport increases. Are other people so averse, for example, to payments per se that they don't care about any uh, positive effect on, on the supply of kidneys? Are some people so strongly in favor of payments that they would allow payments even if there was any, there wasn't any uh, impact on uh, on the number of kidneys uh, available for transport? Right. So that's what this model allow, uh, allows us to, uh, to answer, okay? I'm not going to go through the details. Let me tell you about, uh, about this uh, uh, um, 
these experiments that we uh, that we design based on different uh, 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 you know streams of literature. There are some studies on uh, uh, other values that matter for economic decisions, like also for fairness, religious beliefs, ideology. Uh, there is research on well-being and preferences for redistribution. There is a large literature on well-being, build a lot of ethical dilemmas. Typically, in these cases, people have to do with uh, an activity that everybody considers wrong, like lying or cheating or stealing. And we want to see whether you know some monetary benefits make them you know more willing to cheat or to lie or to steal. Uh, so we don't look at those kind of things in particular, but of course the methodology affects us uh, quite, uh, quite a bit. So what we did is uh, uh, we uh, sought the help of a, a survey company, it's called Qualtrics. They maintain uh, in the US, this is a study about US uh, respondents, we wanted to keep at least the country constant at least for this study. This company is able to, you know, uh, reach certain panels uh, that are matched on some social demographics in order that for them to be uh, as representative of the overall population as, uh, as possible. And so we had uh, 2,666 people participating. We paid them for participation. And we also gave them some ad additional payments, which I'll talk about uh, in a moment. And so the first thing we did, uh, we don't need to read all this, but basically we wanted them to sort of be up to date of what the allocation, the procurement of allocation for kidneys look like in the US how it works, what are the health consequences to get a kidney for uh, the recipient, what are the potential health consequences for the donors, uh, how many kidneys are needed, so what is the balance between demand and supply uh, in the US, and so on and so forth. So we provided a relatively lengthy uh, uh, set of information uh, about, uh, about the procurement and allocation of kidneys in the US. The idea was to make sure people to some extent understood, uh, and they were all on the same page uh, about about this. Okay. We then told people, okay, now, uh, and also one thing that we had, we also described how what the procurement allocation system looks like in terms of the fact that there is no uh, payment for the for the for the donors. So donors are not paid, are not compensated. Then we told people, okay, now we're going to ask you to consider a potentially alternative system, right? Alternative to the to the current one, okay? With some different characteristics, okay? And so this is where we randomize. So each individual randomly received one of these eight systems to consider. And so each system varied uh, along three features, okay? So all systems included some payment for the uh, for the donor, okay? What we vary was First of all, the type of payment, okay? So for four of the systems, payment would be in cash, like a deposit on a bank account. And for the other four systems, it was a non-cash payment. So uh, we included uh, uh, college fund, retirement fund, uh, loan repayment, uh, among, uh, among other things. So more of an in-kind uh, payment, not sort of liquid cash. And the reason to distinguish between these two different two types of payment is because in the literature there is this sense that yes, coercion may be an issue when it comes to payment for kidneys. People might rush to donating in order to get the money because they need them without actually collecting all the information 
uh, about the risks, uh, what it entails, and so on, that perhaps with in-kind payments, so something you don't like enjoy immediately, right? Uh, perhaps this coercion issue is less uh, is less strong. So we wanted to see whether that was the case. We also manipulated the amount. Okay, so we went for a relatively small amount, thirty thousand dollars, and a relatively high amount, a hundred thousand dollars. Okay. And the idea here is that here there are different views in a sense. On the one hand, some people think that it's more exploitative to pay a little a small amount, right? So this is a major decision, right? This is you know an important organ you give up, yes you have the other one, but still, so you should pay a lot, right? Uh, because otherwise, you know, you're really taking advantage of people. On the other hand, there is a sense in which too high of a payment by constitute what we might call undue influence, like an offer you can't refuse, like $100,000, I need to give this gift, right? And then, you know, I don't pay attention to all the information uh, that, you know, is relevant for this decision and so on. So we thought it would be interesting to look at that, why this, uh, this amount, so $30,000 is a little bit of the lower end of what people are proposing, uh, it goes from 30 to 50 these days, 100000 is above, so we wanted to a large sum, but still a sum that kind of is not crazy, like $2 million. And actually, with $100,000 per kidney, you still would be cost efficient uh, as opposed to dialysis, right? So it's still something that would save taxpayers money. And finally, we also wanted to play, so to speak, with the identity of the patient. So the question is, is people's attitude toward payment an attitude toward payment per se, is it payment? Is it money? Is it a price, a positive price, that makes people uneasy? Or is it mostly about the identity of the payer? Right? So what if instead of the patient having to pay $30,000 or $100,000, it was a third party, public agency, the public sector, the public health system, Medicare, to pay the dollar? Okay, would that change, right? On the one hand, one might say, yes, it might change, because in this case, you guarantee equal access to everybody, so even those who can't afford a kidney would receive a kidney, right? If instead it is the patient that has to pay, then of course not everybody can afford it, so you will have unfair, unfair access, okay? So this is, you know, part of uh, the debate, and of course, in principle, there can be a difference, but again, it might be system specific. So uh, in the US, for example, it is prohibited to use public funds, so Medicare or Medicaid, for uh, interrupting a pregnancy, for example, right? Whereas you can pay and go to, to a clinic and get an abortion, right? So in that case, it's considered immoral to use public money for, uh, for an activity that is ethically contentious, but if you use your own money, that's fine, okay? Is it the same here, or is it the other way, or it doesn't matter? So that's why we also wanted to address, uh, to address this question, okay? And then what we say, so each individual, again, to go back, would receive one of these eight systems to consider, okay? And then we, we, told, uh, we told people, okay, now we're gonna ask you, essentially, to vote for this system against uh, the current one in a, a hypothetical referendum, 
under five different scenarios. So you will see this question about whether you'll be in favor of the system five times. And each time, we will ask you to assume that the alternative system will produce a certain number of transplants, right? Okay, so the idea here is to see whether essentially people are responsive, <coughs> right, to different transplant levels. So we had a case where the transplant level was the same as in the current system. So to date in the US there are 19,000 kidney transplants per year, so we kept it the same. And then we went on to increase 23, 28, 33, and 38,000. 38,000 is the number of people who join the wait list every year, right? So with 38,000 transplants, you would cover the annual demand entirely, 100% of the demand, right? So we proposed five scenarios, and in each scenario, people had to say no, could say no, I am not in favor of this system, or yes, I am in favor of the system, and they had to click uh, the button, okay? Then we did another thing in this survey. Uh, so, half of the population, half of the individuals, in addition to receiving those kind of questions, they receive also another sort of module, uh, question module. What we ask people is to express their opinions, both about the current system and the alternative system they receive information about, across six aspects of the system. So what we ask, for example, is overall, this is an example, does this system let individual make, individuals make full informed choices, or does it exert undue influence, right? So we wanted to test what people thought about the coercion problem, right? And they could slice, uh, slide, sorry, the, uh, the little ball or the dot through uh, the slider, both in the positive and in the negative, right? Uh, and the idea was to have at least a subjective evaluation of the extent to which people thought that some uh, important social values, uh, ethical values, uh, were respected or violated for the system they had to consider, and also for the current system without payments, okay? So we asked uh, uh, in these six questions, uh, so there were six of these uh, sliders here, uh, at each supply level uh, in order to see whether ethical views of people also depended on uh, the transplant level. So you can think that you might find payments immoral uh, if or uh, violating dignity if they don't produce any additional organ. But if they cover 100% of the demand, then you might say, OK, this is ethical. This helps people, right? So we also wanted to capture, to capture that, OK? And we also measure, I'm not going to go into the details, sort of like moral concern measures by comparing the, uh, the moral judgments uh, in a scale from minus 10 to plus 10 in the current system to those in the, uh, in the alternative system. OK? All right. Uh, so why do we ask this additional model? And why do we do it only for half of the population? So first of all, we wanted to see whether just making ethical considerations more salient, right? Having people think about these things uh, changed their preferences as compared to those who didn't, uh, didn't see uh, these questions. 
We also wanted to see whether these ethical views change with the transplant effects, uh, as I was mentioning a moment earlier, and also whether the favor or opposition to a paid uh, donor system depended also, or was correlated at least, with uh, people's ethical views. All right, so basically, from an experimental design, we say that we have both a within and between uh, randomization or uh, design, so across individuals, we change the type of payment, the amount of payment, the identity of the payer, and also whether they receive this ethic assessment or ethical judgment module. And for each individual, we also ask the questions five times in order to sort of identify different types of individuals. Not only are we interested in how people differ in their responses, but also how people change their responses for different transplant levels. Okay? That might give us a sense of how strong their preferences, their preferences are. Okay? Of course, we can't legalize uh, payments ourselves, so this is inevitably what we call a hypothetical survey. Okay? So we ask people to assume certain transplant levels and to express their view as if it was a referendum or a vote, but this is not really a vote. So one might always be concerned that because there is no consequentiality, right, uh, and there are no incentives, people might not respond truthfully, right? So what do we make of this? Is this informative or not? So there are a number of strategies that we employed uh, to sort of, you know, making sure or increase the likelihood that you know, these responses were truthful responses. We have a honor code at the beginning. Uh, basically, people just you know, have to say yes or no to the, to the, the question, do you, uh, you know, do you commit to answer truthfully, and so on. And if they say no, we take them out. Of course, this is a soft commitment. But there is evidence that just being told that put people in a different state of mind. We told people that we would inform Congress members and the Health Secretary in the US of the aggregate results, and we showed them uh, a sample of the letter we would send. And as soon as the study, you know, hopefully and eventually is published, we actually will do that, so we'll honor this, uh, this, pro uh, this uh, promise. We also asked them, how do you feel about your responses? How strongly uh, do you feel? And we also asked them, you know, the degree to which they thought that policymakers should take these, their responses into consideration, so whether they think it's important, and will take their, their responses into consideration, so whether they think they have some consequentiality, right, in their, in their responses. So this is stuff that, for example, the contingent valuation literature you suppose that is a, like an oil spill in the ocean, and we're trying to evaluate the, the damages. That's very hard to do, right? And so the way we, uh, we address these issues is actually by asking people how much they would be willing to pay for, say, clean waters or things like that, right? And so they use these techniques so that people come up with truthful, uh, truthful responses and we can evaluate the cost or the damages uh, of, for example, environmental disasters and, uh, and so on. In order to go a step further, we also introduced what we might call a revealed preference experiment. So in, we had an additional experiment where people actually had an advantage to respond in some way or had to incur some cost in, in their responses. This is what we did. So we told people, okay, there are these two organizations, and this is all true, actually, uh, obviously. 
Uh, one organization, uh, they both have to do with promoting uh, the donation of organs. One of them, the American Transplant Foundation, is a proponent of compensation. Okay? The other one, the National Kidney Foundation, is strongly against any form of compensation. Okay? So well, that's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to offer you one extra dollar if you allow us to donate a dollar to one of these two organizations to which you will be assigned randomly, okay? So you will be assigned randomly to either the one in favor or the one against, and they know which one they're assigned to. And if you allow us to donate a dollar to them, you will be paid an extra dollar. If you don't allow us, if you say you don't want us to pay them, you won't get that extra dollar, okay? So what's the idea here? Basically, we want to see whether people are willing to give up a dollar, some payment, small, but at least a, po a positive payment, in order to express their opposition to payment. That's what we care mostly about. Eight, with 80% probability, people would be assigned to the organization that is in favor. So our most of our analysis at this point is about do some people say they don't want to donate, even if that means giving up some money. Right? So this is a costly decision. Okay? And the idea is seeing whether the responses to the hypothetical surveys and their decision about donating are consistent with each other. And so this is another way to get at whether people sort of took this, uh, this, survey, this survey seriously. Okay? All right. We also uh, use uh, some, uh, some modules from the literature in uh, moral psychology, Jonathan Heights, and, uh, and others. They have some work on, you know, what dominant values people have. And so we ask them, so this is a battery of questions that has been validated, how important certain values are for you. And so we focus on giving, pragmatism, compassion, pleasure, tradition, and freedom. And we also propose people a moral dilemma, very similar to some of you might know the trolley problem. And we did a version of it where basically there are people in a submarine and there is an accident in this submarine and there is this person called Casey, which was a kind of gender neutral uh, name, uh, more or less. Uh, and what this person can do is either open a hatch, which will for sure kill one person, but allow many other people to, to leave the submarine and to, to, to save themselves, or keep the hatch closed in order not to hit that person and kill all the other people, right? And so the idea here is distinguishing between deontologist and consequentialist or utilitarian. So a deontological person is against killing anybody, right? So they would never take an action or allow to be, an action to be taken to kill someone, right? Utilitarian will count the number of lives to save, essentially, right? And so we also ask this kind of question, and then some social demographics, okay? Uh, let me skip this. Uh, and uh, turns out most people, you know, thought that, you know, policymakers should keep into consideration their answers. Very few thought that you know, the probability of uh, these answers be taken into consideration was zero. So there was some percent, some perception of relevance, consequentiality in the, uh, in the, in the responses, okay? So let's go through some of the findings. So the first finding is that it turns out that in the overall population, the overall support for uh, payments 
increases with higher transplant effects. Okay? So this is what the graph looks like. Each line corresponds to one of the eight systems. Uh, okay? So we see an upward sloping uh, uh, characteristics of this. So these curves are all upward, uh, upward sloping. And uh, uh, what is interesting is that, so if you look at these lines, so uh, these four lines include payments by the recipient, cash, non-cash, uh, 100,000, 30,000. And the four lines on the top includes payments uh, uh, to by a third party, by a public agency. So what this says is that the amount of payment, or the type of payment, cash versus non-cash, doesn't have a big impact on the overall support. Okay? What has a very strong impact, it turns out, is the identity of the payer. So what I do in this graph is essentially taking the average of these four curves and those four curves, okay? Just to make the graph uh, more uh, legible, okay? So there is a systematic difference in support, right? In the order of about 15, uh, 15 percentage points, uh, okay? So basically, if you, uh, one thing you can notice is that for uh, systems where the recipient has to pay, the level of support when you cover the whole demand, so the increases of 19,000 uh, kidneys, is the same as the support for a system when an agency pays and there is no increase in transplants. Okay? So the difference is very, very stark. Okay? This seems to be the one characteristic, uh, the identity of the payer rather than the payment per se, that affects very strongly, uh, very strongly uh, support, support rates. One thing you might notice here is that even, again, for no transplant effects, you see that the support for payment is not zero, right? It's actually pretty high, between 50 and 65%, okay? You also notice that even at 100% of coverage of demand, support is not 100%, okay? So on the one hand, there are people who are in favor of payments, at least this is consistent with this graph, that are in favor of payments even without any supply increase, and there are people who oppose payments even when you actually solve the supply shortage altogether, right? So this hints at the fact that there may be types in the population, and we sort of identify types by looking at, within each individual, how many times, essentially, they said yes or no to the question of whether they would support a system, right? So you can identify, essentially, five types. So some about 21%, we call them always opposed. Remember, there were five questions. Five times they had to say yes or no. Or five times they said no. Okay? So there are one-fifth, a little bit more than one-fifth of the respondents who really are strongly, strongly opposed. Okay? About 46%, on the other hand, they always said yes. So they are in favor of payments. Right? Regardless of supply considerations. Okay? About 18% are switching in a sort of, uh, you know, consistent monotone way. So they start by saying no for slow transplant effects, and at some point they switch to supporting. Okay? <coughs> then there is a very small group who uh, who goes in the opposite direction. Actually, these are people, very few of them actually, who start by supporting at low transplant effects 
and for very high transplant effects, they change their minds, right? So initially we were a little surprised about this effect, but as I will show also later, but I can anticipate, if you think about it, if you're concerned, for example, about undue influence a lot or coercion, if I tell you, you know, so many people will come and donate uh, kidneys, you might say, whoa, 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 that's a little too much. Now I start being concerned, right? So my moral views change uh, in this particular case. So it's okay to pay, maybe it's fair to the, to the donor to give them some money, but if you attract too many donors, then there are other things that come to mind. So there may be some, uh, something of that, whereas many other, you know, they are utilitarians, essentially they respond to uh, transplant increases. As very often happens in this kind of choice experiments, you have some people who just don't care too much about you know, taking the survey, and you see these erratic responses. They also take shorter time to complete the survey. So these are the random people that we don't consider too much in the analysis. It happens in every, uh, in every survey, OK? So we see, on the one hand, very strong polarization of attitude. So 46 plus 21, approximately, is 67, right? So two-thirds have very polarized view, two-thirds of the population, okay, in our sample. So very often when it comes to these ethically contentious uh, topics, people take very extreme views, right? And so we, we see that also in this case, but we also see a non-negligible share of people who respond to, uh, to payments, okay? And so we wanted to go a little bit further and try to see whether moral views uh, about payments and the various characteristics actually have something to do with these different responses uh, or response types, if you want, response patterns. So it turns out that those moral judgments that we ask people about are very spread in the population, okay? You have some people, I just put three of the six questions, so benefit versus exploitation, fairness versus unfairness to patient, and promotion or violation of dignity. You see, you know, I don't want to go too much into detail, but you know, people are all over the place. Right? Some people find uh, that you know, there is a, a, a strong violation of certain principles. Some people think, it's, on the other hand, that those principles are respected. So there is a lot of heterogeneity. Okay, uh, not gonna go too much into detail, but what we do here is to, uh, this is a regression analysis, we regress, essentially we wanna see the correlation or essentially the effect of different transplant increases on those different concerns, right? So concern for exploitation, uh, lack of autonomous choice all the, way, uh, all the way out. So in general, there is a response to, uh, to transplant increases, so the concern, so a negative coefficient means that the higher the, the transplant, the, the, the greater the transplant, the lower the concern. So people are less concerned when you, you know, when they assume a higher, uh, higher supply. And uh, some of the features of each system seem to affect moral considerations. So cash payments are a little more problematic, at least when it comes to considering exploitation, uh, fairness to patients, for example, and human dignity. But what's really strong is the moral opposition to payment, PBT means payment, private payments, or payment by the, uh, the patient, the recipient. So there is a strong sort of, a, you know, harsher moral views when it comes to, again, the identity of the payer, and in particular, the one 
coefficient that stand out, stands out is the one about concern for fairness to patients. What people really care about is unequal access to kidneys if you have the recipient paying. Okay, so that's what really matters a lot, uh, a lot to people. Okay. This is uh, a similar graph. So uh, basically, we want to see whether the, the five different types, the always opposed, the opposed to favor, the always in favor, the favor to oppose, and the others vary in the overall ethical, ethical judgment. So think of this as an average over those six uh, uh, or the principal component across those six uh, uh, features and how that varies uh, uh, with, uh, uh, with different transplant levels. So essentially what I wanna, uh, want you to focus on is that those who are who have very polarized view, so the always opposed or the always in favor, first of all, they have very different moral views. So those who are always opposed have much higher repugnance, we may call it, or concern, moral concern. Those who are always in favor, much lower. And in both cases, there is very little response to transplant changes. So their moral views are very stable to different transplant levels. Okay? They feel very strongly about their, uh, their views. Look at the opposed to favor in particular. So these are people who start by opposing payments for very low, for lower transplant gains. And then they move to supporting payments for higher gains. Look at their moral view, their moral concerns. They go down accordingly, right? So this is evidence that, at least in part, my support depends on my moral views, okay? They, 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 they go together. They are, uh, they are correlated, okay? So this is one way to, to see it. And also, you know, on average, they are halfway in terms of moral concerns between those always opposed and those always in favor, okay? Uh, let me let me switch this, and I want to show you uh, this, which is the main analysis. So here we have a regression where our dependent variable, our outcome, is whether or not someone uh, responded yes to supporting the system, and we want to see the correlation with uh, the transplant increases, okay, the characteristics of the system, okay and the various concerns for, you know, the violation of the various principles, right? So the first finding is that, you know, as we showed before, there is a response to, uh, there still is a response even when we add all these other variables to transplant increases, okay? It's a little smaller than before, but it's still uh, very statistically significant, okay? And we see the very, you know, significant and you know large negative coefficient on payment by the recipient. So once again, the identity of the recipient matters a lot. But see what happened at the size of this coefficient. Maybe I have it in the other. Yes, at the size of this coefficient when I add the concerns for the different uh, for the different values. Okay, so. Basically, what this uh, coefficient says is that the reduction, and we saw it also in the graph, in support uh, for a system with payment by the recipient goes down by 14 to 15 uh, percentage points, okay? But when you control for moral concerns, the coefficient is almost half, okay? Eight rather than, minus eight rather than minus 14. Why is that? Because in large part, the opposition to 
payments by recipients is due to one factor, which is the concern for fairness to the patient. Okay, so this confirms our conjecture that equal access and the opposition to the identity of the payer rather than the payment per se is the key factor, is the key factor here to, uh, to consider, okay? Uh, remember uh, about uh, the donation experiment. So what we did is, okay, let's see. Uh, so we had some variation. Some people donated, some people did not donate. Okay, so that's good from a researcher point of view. So we said, do those who donated to uh, the organization that supports payment differ from those who decided to not donate to the organization that supports payment? Okay, and the answer is yes. This is their average or principal component of their moral concerns expressed before, okay? So those who donated were also the people who uh, were much less concerned about the violation of moral principle, okay? So there is a correlation between the expression of ethical judgment in the survey and the decision to give up a dollar, essentially, to not, uh, to not donate. And we see exactly the opposite for those who were assigned to the organization that opposes payment. So it was the people with higher moral concern for payment that were more likely to donate, okay? And what we also see is that the donation rates were very different according to the type of donors, right? So those who are always in favor, 60% of those uh, donated, 60% uh, of those uh, assigned to the organization that support payments donated, okay? And for example, those always opposed only 20% of right? So there is a very strong, uh, very strong uh, difference, which we don't see uh, for the organization uh, that opposes, uh, that opposes payments, okay? We also did an additional analysis to go further into the sort of moral foundation or ethical foundations. And what we found here is that, uh, uh, I'm not gonna go into the details, but this is basically, a summary of consequentialist or utilitarian values, okay? So we see that those who were always opposed to payment have much lower, give much lower importance to utilitarian values, whereas those who are always in favor are more utilitarian. And this is basically the response to the uh, submarine dilemma, right? So what this is saying is that those who are always opposed to payments are much more likely to say, don't kill the person, okay? Whereas those who are always in favor are much more likely to say, yeah, kill that person and save the others, right? So again, there is a strong consistency among these different modules in the, in the survey indicating heterogeneity preferences, a key role of the identity of the payers, and strong moral foundations behind these different views, okay? Uh, there is also some additional evidence. Turns out that those who are more deontological, you know, they complete the survey uh, faster. And normally there is this sense that when you have very strong views, you don't have to think too much about it, right? So this is, again, uh, consistent. Also, we left uh, optional at the end of the survey the possibility to add some comments, right? What do you think about this survey? Write whatever you want, okay? So yeah, there were some comments like, you know, great service, a couple of you guys are assholes, fine. But <laughs> most people didn't write anything, but about 10%, 15% did. And there were, you know, 
part of them were interesting, right? They were building up on their responses, but more importantly, those who were more vocal, those who left some sensible comments, not just you no know, comments or thanks or something like that, were much more likely to be those who felt very strongly, right? Those who were in particular against payments, right? And so this is again the idea that if you feel very strongly, you really wanna uh, you, you really wanna point it out. So there are very pieces, very different pieces in the in the in the in the module, in the survey. Sorry, uh, that sort of are consistent with each other. So to conclude. We think this is the first investigation into sort of the nature of preferences of Americans, in this case, toward paying for organs. And so to summarize, you know, or sort of point to the main result in our results, in our opinion, we document strong polarization on the one hand, but about a fifth of the population actually does respond to uh, supply considerations. And that means that transplant effects might affect the public opinion and societal support. And as a consequence, those pilot studies that I was mentioning before, that, for example, Representative Cartwright is proposing, might actually make sense uh, according to this result. We also find, on the other hand, that there are strong, deep ethical roads to preferences. And so actually, moral concerns are a constraint, at least in this case, to uh, uh, introducing a price uh, mechanism, but more specifically, what really seems to matter here is not just the aversion to pay to a positive price per se, but rather to having the recipient pay. Okay? And so the main concern is about equal access or fairness to patients. This is relevant because this might be addressed from an institutional point of view. Right? So if you have a third party, an agency, a public agency paying, most of the concerns might actually go. Okay, that's at least, it may be, if you want, payment may be, as we say, morally morally viable. Okay? From a methodological point of view, we saw some you know, consistency between, on the one hand, the direct preferences that people expressed, although they were just stated, not revealed, so hypothetical, not real, for legalizing payments, a consistency with the revealed preferences or the donation, uh, the donation choice. We also saw consistency in the different modules of, uh, of the survey. And so this is also a methodological contribution to the way to do this service. And in general, we feel that we might have built a platform if you want to study also other ethically uh, contentious activities, such as gestational surrogacy, doctor-assisted deaths, market for gametes, animal experimentation, uh, and so on and so forth. Recreational drugs, uh, very sort of timely here in Canada. And so perhaps we can expand, or others can expand on this, on this approach. This is all I have. Thank you. Thank you.